Right. Good, after, uh, good afternoon, everybody. I'd like to uh, welcome everybody to Cancer Center Grand Rounds. And it's really a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Uh, Tiffany Trainer. Um, she's been at Memorial uh, Sloan Kettering for a number of years now. Actually, I think Tiffany was joking. She's been in a one-and-a-half or two-block radius for almost her whole career uh, for quite a few years. She did her undergrad tra training at, at Cornell, um, and she went to medical school at Cornell um, as well, um, uh, did her residency there, if I remember correctly, then moved, moved across the street, I guess, to um, Memorial, where she did her fellowship training and has been there ever since. And she's currently, um, I guess for a couple of years now, been the clinical director of the Breast Medicine Service at Memorial. Um, and she more recently has become the section head of the triple, uh, triple negative breast cancer clinical research program. And, and um, Dr. Train, I really want to uh, point out as an internationally recognized clinician and an investigator in breast cancer research uh, for more than a decade now. She's done some enormously uh, important work over the last couple of years. Um, she's also served on a number of ASCO committees, I think currently um, is serving on the ASCO Scientific Program Review Committee for um, triple negative breast cancer, cytotoxic chemo, and local regional treatment as well. Uh, now I, have, I do have to read, uh, as everybody here knows, is Dr. Trainer's conflict uh, COI statement. And she has reported a, a grant and or research support from a number of companies, including Pfizer, um, Estellas, uh, Inocrine, who I've never heard of. Um, she's received consultant uh, and or honorarium for um, activities with Pfizer, Genomics Health, uh, Genentech, Merck, again, Inocrine, uh, Estellas, and Puma, and has received uh, compensation for serving on Speakers Bureau for Genentech. Um, she, she will be discussing off-label medication use and a number of investigational medications, but her uh, lecture has been reviewed and uh, reconciled or resolved by Dr. Hartford and the CME group here, who has approved her lecture. So with that introduction, I'd like Thank to welcome you. Dr. Trainer. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. So sweet. Thank you. I've had such a nice um, few days here in at Dartmouth and really appreciate the kind welcome and the time I've spent with many of you already in hearing all the exciting work that's going on here. And I hope it's the start of many long collaborations. So, you know, when I was asked if I was talking about anything off-label, essentially pretty much everything going on right now in triple negative breast cancer is off-label, right? So the standard of care, which we'll go over for a little bit in the beginning just to set a framework, is basically cytotoxic chemotherapy, and you're probably all well familiar with that. Um, and this is, I think, clearly a big unmet need in the area of breast cancer management and research. So the large bulk of what we'll talk about are two main areas within triple negative breast cancer that I think are imminently relevant, looking at some BRCA-related targeted therapies and AR, which is near and dear to my heart. And then we'll try to quickly get to, at the end, some of the other potential targets of interest. So please interrupt me. I want this to be useful for everyone here. I really appreciate taking the time in the middle of your day to come hear a, a talk. So as you've heard already and as we've talked about a bit, the definition of triple negative breast cancer in and of itself is a problem. Um, it's kind of provincial. It's just related to IHC staining and the lack of estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2 staining. So that in and of itself is a problem. It's, it's really saying we don't know what we're talking about here. We're defining this by what it isn't as opposed to what it is. 
And for those of you who see patients who have triple negative breast cancer, you know that the, the clinical pattern is different. These tend to be younger women, and although it's a small fraction of all the breast cancer that happens, it accounts for a large proportion of breast cancer-related mortality. So even despite using our best chemotherapy drugs, these cancers tend to recur pretty quickly in the first two to three years, and it's not unusual to have visceral disease or even brain metastases as the site of first recurrence. So these are our bad players right now and, and really have the, the poorest outcome of all of the subtypes we're aware of. So if I were going to talk about standard of care therapy, this would be it in a nutshell. You can find this on the NCCN webpage, and it really hasn't changed for several years now. Um, I've put little asterisks next to some of our go-to drugs of choice, and I'll spend a few moments going over the data supporting these. But our backbone go-to drugs remain taxanes. Platinums have worked their way into this space in TNBC and then we'll touch on aribulin a little bit. But I would have as a takeaway that clinical trials really are a standard of care and always remain an option for triple negative breast cancer, even in the first-line setting, even in the adjuvant setting, even in the neoadjuvant setting, because we clearly need to do better than what our, our current standards offer. So I try to develop a schematic of what's going on in my brain in a typical clinic. Um, and these are the multiple factors that are running through my mind when I'm meeting a patient who has advanced triple negative breast cancer and needs a treatment change. And you all probably do this as naturally as just breathing, right? It's happening all the time. But there are multiple factors and categories of factors that we're considering when we try to make a recommendation. And foremost is the patient before you. What is their functional status? What other medical problems do they bring to the table? Um, I think that germline BRCA status has become a critical, important, potentially predictive biomarker that we'll talk about more later. And then these other factors of compliance, adherence, convenience, and, and patient preference are really high up there in, in terms of priorities. In terms of the tumor itself, we need to understand the disease burden, how symptomatic are they from the sites of their disease, and what is the tempo of this breast cancer like? I know someone asked me earlier today if that disease-free interval or time to recurrence is meaningful or matters, and I think there's quite a difference between someone who develops an incidental finding of metastatic disease three years later, as opposed to the woman who's developing back pain and symptoms while she's still getting her adjuvant radiation therapy. And that is not unheard of, unfortunately, in TNBC. We'd like to think that there are predictive biomarkers that will help guide us in what treatments we should recommend. And genomics are a hot area that you've heard much about. Um, we need to know about our drugs and what prior treatments patients have received. So in, I'm not going to talk about early stage disease, but as I mentioned before, because this is a higher risk tumor, we tend to use the whole kitchen sink in the adjuvant setting when goal is what's at stake. And these days, it would not be unusual for a woman to have received anthracycline, cytoxin, taxane, perhaps platinum, all in the early stage setting. And there's now data that if a woman fails to achieve a PATH-CR from neoadjuvant chemotherapy, there's a role for six months of capecitabine. So when you think about what you're going to recommend in the first-line setting of metastatic triple-negative breast cancer, this is a tumor that has been exposed to easily five other chemotherapy drugs. And that's a very different situation than what we see with ER-positive disease. And then lastly, I mentioned timing. As you know, supporting clinical trials um, and any treatment choice, there are life events, right? I have a patient who is progressing today who is leaving for Paris to see her granddaughter tomorrow. And so that 
plays a role in what I'm going to recommend of what we should do next. I want to make sure that our patients are living their lives while they have metastatic breast cancer and are on treatment. Clinical trials have washouts. So be aware when you're reading the latest new trial with exciting results, that's a highly selected population. We have many women with TNBC who can't wait the four-week washout to get onto a trial because of the tempo of their disease. Um, and so think about those biases as you're interpreting the data you see. So we're going to run through some basic data so we're, we all start with at the same groundwork. Um, this CLGB study was a first-line trial in metastatic breast cancer, looking at the control arm of weekly paclitaxel, great active drug in breast cancer, um, compared to some newer, sexier drugs like nabpaclitaxel or ixabepalone. And in short, plain old weekly paclitaxel rises to the top. Nabpaclitaxel was non-inferior. Ixabepalone was actually inferior to paclitaxel. And when you take into account all the other toxicities, really weekly paclitaxel remains a very reasonable first-line option. When you look at the subset of women who had triple negative breast cancer, the same pattern arose. Weekly paclitaxel is a very reasonable option. Unfortunately, you see that curve has shifted to the left a little bit. So your median progression-free survival is, is rather short in the first-line setting with cytotoxic chemotherapy and generally around a three, at best, to six-month mark. But there remains a role for paclitaxel. And there's been a lot of excitement about platinums, generally and traditionally not so exciting in all subtypes of breast cancer. Um, some of the early response data from cisplatin monotherapy dates back to the 80s. In an unselected population, uh, response rates were about 50%. But then these were eclipsed by taxanes that had easier administration, less toxicity, and platinums fell out of favor until there was recognition of this subset of triple negative breast cancer. Um, because of this idea that there is a defect in DNA damage repair and a sensitivity to DNA damaging agents, platinums were back on the scene for TNBC. And most of the studies out there were tiny, or they were uncontrolled, retrospective comparators, and we really didn't have data of how a platinum compared to conventional taxane until just a few years ago with the TNT trial that was presented. So this was a study done in the UK that randomized women with triple negative breast cancer in the first-line setting to either docetaxel or carboplatin. The primary endpoint was response rate. And so for the overall study population, there really wasn't much of a difference. Platinums had activity comparable to what ataxane had. But it became interesting when you started to look at subsets. So this overall population is around 400 patients. 43 of those patients had known germline BRCA1 or 2 mutation. So tiny subset, yet this is where you start to see differential response. So those patients who had a known germline mutation had a greater response to carboplatin than the subset that received docetaxel. And if you look at the wild-type population, there really isn't a difference there. That same um, differential response held true in terms of median progression-free survival, where on the left you see the overall study population. On the right, you see that whether you have a BRCA mutation or not, your response to taxane is the same. But if you have a germline BRCA mutation, you have a better outcome receiving platinum right, in the metastatic first-line setting. 
So this allows us yet another option for first-line use uh, and maybe starts to give us a bit of a predictive biomarker or a signal of who might benefit best from this approach. Once we're out of the first-line setting, we're back to that NCCN list of really a number of different chemotherapy options and unclear how to prioritize them until the EMBRACE study reported out now about six years ago. And this was a, a really landmark trial that was a bold, randomized phase three study in women who were heavily pretreated metastatic breast cancer. They were randomized to a ribulin versus treatment of physician's choice from a laundry list of reasonable chemotherapy options in breast cancer. And the punchline is that aribulin beat out that category of treatment of physician's choice by about 20%. And this was not limited to triple negative breast cancer. Um, but I'd like to highlight Peter's work from just a few years ago that looked at aribulin in earlier lines of therapy up against capecitabine. And here again, although for the overall study population, aribulin had activity, but perhaps no better than capecitabine, if you look at the subsets of triple negative breast cancer that I've highlighted in orange, you can see that the TNBC tumors seemed to respond better to aribulin over capecitabine. And in practice, as I've mentioned, most of these women have had exposure to anthracycline, taxane, platinum, and maybe even capecitabine in the early stage setting, um, I, I find that these data are compelling to pull aribulin up earlier in even first or second line setting for metastatic TNBC. So there, therein ends standard of care. Lots of chemotherapy drugs, but unfortunately not enough because I've already told you median overall survival is rather poor. And, and on average, it's about a year from the time of diagnosis of metastatic triple negative breast cancer. But not all triple negative breast cancer is the same. I'm, I'm not a pathologist, but just from a high level look at the left side of the screen, you can tell these histologies look very different, yet they all test negative for ERPR and HER2. And other groups have described this heterogeneity, not just at the histology level, but at the molecular level, or the group um, in Vanderbilt, Lehman, and Petenpol have showed that you could molecularly start to segregate out subtypes of TNBC that potentially have different molecular drivers. And then also in the realm of tumor genomic profiling, you can see prevalence of certain somatic alterations, um, including probably most prevalent is P53. So many groups are just struggling in how to better define this bucket term of, of TNBC. So like I said before, we're going to focus on two areas to start with. And the first that is hot off the presses as of ASCO is germline BRCA as a predictive biomarker of, of response to therapy. Um, this is also from the recent NCCN guidelines. And I just want to highlight that NCCN supports clinical genetic testing for a woman with triple negative breast cancer under the age of 60. So that is a much lower bar than um, I think the way we've traditionally grown up thinking about referring patients for clinical genetics. And so keep the, I actually have this printed and hanging in my clinic because I need visual reminders all the time to make sure I'm not missing um, a potential patient and family where this information would be really critical. So there have been lots of PARP inhibitors in development and under study uh, across the board with a lot more enthusiasm and approval in ovary cancer, but nothing to date in breast cancer. And we can all wonder sort of why, why that may be, but we'll dwell a bit on elaparib since that has the most relevance recently. 
There were several studies that looked at Olaparib in early phase, phase one, phase two looks in small numbers um, in populations that were slightly different. So when you had a population of patients that had germline BRCA mutations, you started to see quite impressive overall response rates. However, Karen Gelman's study, small numbers, only a few with germline mutations, had actually a relatively low response rate unless you looked at those that had a BRCA germline mutation. And then um, lastly, in this study of about 60 patients, in those who had BRCA germline mutations were getting a signal of, of benefit even though they had multiple prior lines of therapy. So ultimately what was needed was a randomized phase three trial up against treatment of physician's choice to see if there truly was a role for PARP inhibition in patients who had germline BRCA mutations. And that's what Mark Robson presented at ASCO just this past um, spring. So the Olympiad trial is a big randomized phase three study of patients with triple negative breast cancer with known centrally tested deleterious germline BRCA mutations, BRCA one or two. They had to have had prior anthracycline and taxane. They had to have two or fewer chemotherapy lines for their advanced disease. And the platinum story is important to just make a note of. They could not have progressed on a platinum, but they could have had prior exposure to platinum-based therapy. And the randomization was Olaparib. Note that this was a different formulation than what is out there on the market for ovary cancer. Um, but these tablets are sort of in the works and, and soon to be available. And the control arm is treatment of physician's choice, which includes capecitabine, iribulin, and venerelbine. Um, you'll probably note that a, a big obvious missing drug here is platinum. And so we still don't know how Olaparib would compare to a platinum head-to-head. The primary endpoint is progression-free survival. So I think it's worth looking at the patient characteristics of who is on this study. Um, there's about a 60-40 split between BRCA1 and 2. The population is about half and half, TNBC and ER-positive disease. And many of those women had received prior chemotherapy, right, about 70%. So the punchline is that Olaparib had greater median progression-free survival than traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy um, by 11, I'm sorry, by about three months and a significant hazard ratio of about 40%. So that was encouraging. And when we look at some of the other features, right, I mentioned tempo of disease can be quick. What is time to response? There may have been this inherent bias to think that chemo would get you a quicker response. Um, th those responses were pretty comparable. So time to response between treatment of physician's choice and Olaparib were about six weeks. The overall response rate for Olaparib was 60% compared to 30%, and complete responses was about 10% versus 2%. And that duration of response also was comparable. We always wonder at what expense is this new therapy, right? So we have three-month greater median progression-free survival, um, looks like better response rates, appears to have benefit across most subgroups looked at, particularly I've highlighted the triple negative breast cancer population. But I think what was highly encouraging was the adverse event profile, that not unexpectedly chemotherapy, as shown here in blue, is associated with a bit more fatigue and perhaps a bit more um, in the way of neutropenia. The main issue with Olaparib was anemia and requirement of transfusions. Um, a bit of GI toxicity, but when you look at ultimately what was the discontinuation rate, this is comparable between Olaparib and standard of care. 
And the quality of life measures in the study, I think, were another big take-home message, that not only was this effective and more effective than traditional chemotherapy, um, that the time to deterioration in quality of life was uh, prolonged with Olaparib as compared to chemotherapy. And as I said before, in the different factors that are running through my mind, I want to be able to improve responses and improve survival, but all in the context of a woman living her life and taking an oral therapy and delaying the time to needing chemo and maintaining quality of life to travel to Paris to see your grandchild is a, is a win, I think. So there are lots of future areas of development for PARP inhibition, and some. this is just a, a select list of some of the things going on. Um, the TBCRC consortium is looking at a study that will happen around the country of Olaparib in patients with non-BRCA germline uh, mutations or somatic BRCA mutations, trying to expand upon the potential indication for Olaparib in breast cancer. And then I think oncologists ask relatively simple questions. If one thing works, what about combining it with something else that works? So there's lots of that in, in the queue for Olaparib. Combinations with immuno-oncology agents, um, trying to figure out where to put this in the ER-positive space when endocrine therapy and CDK4-6 inhibition is really a, a standard of care. 50% of the population on Olympiad had ER-positive disease. So there are some combination studies now looking at moving that in to also the backbone of standard of care endocrine therapy. And then there are also um, looks at small molecule inhibitors of ATM and other pathways potentially relevant in TNBC plus Olaparib. And as in all things, if something's working in the advanced setting, this moves up into the early stage setting. So there's a large global trial going on right now of Olaparib in early stage germline BRCA-associated breast cancer. So I want to shift a bit to talk about the androgen receptor in breast cancer. And this is sort of the area of great interest to me. Um, this comes from a paper more than 10 years ago now that was... Um, sort of discovery and, and written by a student that was in a pathology lab at Memorial many years ago before he went on to his PhD work. Um, and there was a panel of about 100 primary breast cancers in the lab, and he and William Gerald did some unsupervised analyses here and found that there was a subset of tumors that were known to be ERPR HER2 negative clustering over here with the tumors that were known to be ER positive. And they demonstrated this very hormonally active signature, even though they were known to be triple negative tumors. And so they thought that was interesting. That was about 25% of the sample of triple negative cancers in the panel. And so when they dug into this a little bit more to see what was differentially expressed, they found that the androgen receptor rose to the top. So they went back and looked at the protein level. Was there differential expression? And yes, AR was there overexpressed at the protein level. And then they found cell lines that recapitulated that AR-positive, triple-negative signature and did some very simple experiments of giving a synthetic androgen, that's this R1881, that could stimulate growth. But when you used an AR antagonist, flutamide, you could abrogate that growth. And there are some other pictures I, I didn't show you about whether you added estrogen to these models and used ER antagonists like tamoxifen, and that had no impact on the growth of this cell line. So they found that it was truly an androgen-dependent, estrogen-independent model. 
And so that was simply hypothesis generating. Back in 2007, we thought, well, bicalutamide is available, and that's used for the treatment of prostate cancer. So why don't we see if there are some folks with triple negative tumors that express AR, and we thought we'd do a small pilot study to see if there was benefit there. So this was supported by BCRF and was a, a multi-center endeavor. Uh, we went in expecting that 25% of the tumors would test AR positive. Um, and this is the schema of the trial where at that time in 2007, ER positivity was 10% or greater and triple negative was defined as 10% or less. So the eligibility here were tumors that were ERPR less than 10% with in-house AR testing using the DACO antibody of IHC 10% or greater. And for those tumors that tested AR positive, women were able to go on to oral bicalutamide daily in continuous dosing. And the primary endpoint was clinical benefit rate at six months. So I mentioned that median progression-free survival is about three months, and that's even in the first-line setting. This was in a population of patients previously treated. So we thought if you could have stabilization of disease at six months, that that would be at least signal-seeking and, and a bit of a success. So here's the consort diagram. It took screening about 450 patients to find 12% that were AR positive and to ultimately have 26 patients come on to study. But of those 26 patients, you can see the, the breakdown and the characteristics here. There were a few. These are those that were treated. These are those that turned up AR positive but didn't come on to, to treatment. So 4% of those, four of those 26 were weak ER positive. Um, so we keep that in the back of our mind because there's some differences in the studies I'll show you. Uh, median age is a little bit older than what we typically see for triple negative breast cancer. Um, but a large number of these patients did have visceral metastases. And the study met its primary endpoint. So there were five of those 26 patients that had prolonged stabilization of disease. I think where we were excited was with the long tail here. So there was one woman on study for more than seven years and actually came off trial because she developed a new primary breast cancer that required she come off study. Um, medium progression-free survival was still around that three-month mark, unfortunately. But it gave us um, interest in looking at this further. When we looked at those few patients, the five patients who had benefit, um, we tried to look for patterns. Um, there was a wide range here of degree of AR staining. And actually, our woman who had the lowest staining is the woman who ended up ultimately on study for more than seven years. So uh, clearly a need for a better biomarker to identify who's going to respond um, many of these women had bone and soft tissue disease. One had visceral metastases. Um, she also had weak ER staining. So the, I think our definition of the population of what is AR-positive triple-negative breast cancer is evolving, as you'll see in study to study. Shortly after that trial, there was this case report that popped up in JCO of a woman who had heavily pretreated advanced disease and ultimately had chest wall disease that tested AR 100%. And she went on to off-label bicalutamide and achieved a complete response. In our bicalutamide study at the time, we, ha we didn't observe any resist-confirmed responses, but had a lot of prolonged stabilization of disease. So this also was encouraging and starting to add to to the wealth of information that perhaps this is really a relevant target. Um, this pathway slide shows a number of different levers and points in AR signaling that could open the door to potential role in treating breast cancer. 
and also is well tapped into for the treatment of prostate cancer. So we moved on from bicalutamide and started to look at other agents that were interesting. So not only targeting the receptor itself, but trying to target androgen production. And so I know this might give you a bit of a headache over lunchtime, but as just a quick reminder, CYP17 is important for the production of androgens. And abiraterone is an oral targeted therapy that blocks CYP17 a bit um, with less selectivity than some of our, our newer agents. So when this happens, you get downstream lower androgens, you get lower estrogens, but you also have a problem because of this reduced cortisol and a feedback loop that drives increased aldo. So what's well known in the prostate cancer world is that you need to give abiraterone with concurrent glucocorticoid and steroid to minimize this toxicity. So abiraterone moved into an, a trial in ER-positive breast cancer because of that mechanism of action. You'll get lower androgen plus lower estrogen, and the ER-positive space is a much larger one. Um, so this was a trial that we conducted several years ago uh, as a randomized study of exemestane alone, abiraterone and prednisone alone, or the combination of abiraterone, prednisone, and exemestane. And unfortunately, although abiraterone had activity, it certainly wasn't better than exemestane, and the combination was no better either. And so this had a bit less enthusiasm to move anywhere in the ER-positive world. Um, and I think it's much more complicated of what the role for androgen receptor antagonism is in ER-positive biology. Um, and it looks like dependence on AR um, is increased as resistance to estrogen-targeted therapies develops and that you have a prolonged estrogen deprivation um, situation. So uh, this was a less selected population and, and a more complicated space. Um, some of the other concern in that trial and why there might not have been benefit in ER-positive disease is that requirement for concurrent glucocorticoid. Um, because we know a mechanism of resistance in prostate cancer is GR signaling as well. And so perhaps giving that concurrent steroid and this influence of PR um, may have led to an underwhelming sort of benefit there. But on the other hand, there may have been a place for this drug in AR-positive, triple-negative breast cancer, a much cleaner environment. So at the time, um, we worked with Hervé Bonifat in Unicancer in France to basically recapitulate the bicalutamide trial design using abiraterone instead. And this was a phase two study, single arm. Um, 138 patients were screened. Here, also using the DACO antibody, they had 38% of patients screened have AR greater than 10% staining. Um, it's, a, again, another small study of 34 patients. Also, again, you're seeing a population of patients that might be a little bit older than our typical TNBC. Very characteristic median disease-free interval of about two years, half the population with visceral metastases. So it looks quite a bit like the bicalutamide trial. Um, and here the clinical benefit rate was 20%. If you remember, the bicalutamide was 19%. So it's consistent with what was seen before, although here they did report a couple of resist-confirmed responses. But the most common adverse events were largely related to, again, that hyperaldo state, even with giving concurrent steroids here. A median progression-free survival also right about the three-month mark. 
So moving on from abiraterone, where again we have this signal seeking that perhaps there's something there, um, we moved on to enzalutamide, which is a bit of a more potent AR antagonist than bicalutamide. And there was the same preclinical experience um, in the MDAMB453 cell line that when you gave androgen, you see growth, and when you've used enzalutamide, you could abrogate that androgen-driven growth. So this was the large phase two study, single arm trial that was conducted globally. And there's some clear differences to the bicalutamide study. One, here the bar of what AR positivity was defined was lower. This is pretty much any staining, um, anything over zero counted. Uh, patients received continuous daily dosing of enzalutamide, but the primary endpoint was a clinical benefit rate at 16 weeks as opposed to 24. What we learned from the past two trials of bicalutamide and abiraterone was that for patients that made it to the 16-week mark, they pretty much went on to the 24-week mark. Um, and so we wanted an early signal by setting that benchmark at CBR 16 with other key endpoints shown here. So this is the first bit of interest in looking at the AR staining. Both DACO and, and Ventana antibodies were used to try to see if there was a difference. Um, it looked like there was good concordance, and there's this bimodal distribution. Patients are either very positive for AR or weakly positive or, or negative altogether. And of the 404 sam tissue samples that were collected, 79% had some degree of AR staining. And if we compare back to the other trials that had a 10% benchmark, 55% of samples were positive. So a much higher hit rate um, in a methodology that was more optimized to test in breast tumors as opposed to older methodology that was developed in prostate samples. Here's the consort diagram. So 165 patients were screened for the phase two, and ultimately um, 75 patients were in the evaluable population, which was defined by the trial as AR greater than 10% and a post-baseline assessment. When we look at the patient characteristics, these patients are a bit younger um, than what we saw in our other two trials. Again, that same two-year disease-free interval, um, about 60% here have visceral disease, and you can see median number of prior lines of therapy is, is one. Let's flip through these. There we go. So here's the clinical benefit data. So in the evaluable population, CBR16 measured 35%. And if you look at CBR24 to try to compare across phase two studies, um, it was comparable, if not a little bit better, at, at 29%. And this was one of the first times we really saw consistent, resist-confirmed, complete or partial responses in the patient population. Medium progression-free survival for the overall um, evaluable population, the primary endpoint was 14.7 weeks, as shown on the left. And when we looked at the ITT population to try to analyze this based on AR cut point, you can see those tumors that were AR greater than 10% had a slightly longer median PFS, Yet this drop-off was really quite abrupt, and, and that curve pattern is really consistent across all of these trials. And so we felt driven to find a better way to segregate those curves and predict who was going to derive benefit from an AR antagonist. In terms of safety, this is really a hormonal agent that was very well tolerated. Um, the one area of concern in prostate cancer is that this drug lowers the seizure threshold, 
and we have seen increased risk of seizure. So patients with a history of brain metastases were excluded from this trial, and anybody who may have had a prior history of seizure was excluded. But we did not see any other CNS concerning symptoms. So as part of that trial, there was a, a clear endpoint for biomarker discovery to try to do better than just IHC alone. Um, and this work was done with Joel Parker um, down at UNC in trying to develop a, a fingerprint or a signature of androgen signaling and dependence. Um, this was developed within tissues from the phase two. Remember, it's a single arm phase two, um, and then validated with an, another internal subset. So I think this is signal seeking, but by no means definitive for any kind of predictive biomarker. But when we analyzed the intention to treat population by the presence of this biomarker, those that were diagnostic positive had a longer median progression-free survival at 16 weeks versus eight weeks if they lacked that signature. And if you look at using this endocrine therapy early on in first or second line setting, we start to see an even greater discrimination between the curves here in a median PFS of upwards of 40 weeks for those that were diagnostic positive. And the same was true in terms of survival. So median OS for the overall population was a year. But when we looked at those by biomarker, those that were diagnostic positive had a median overall survival of about 20 months, and those that were diagnostic negative a short eight months, unfortunately. And so while this was encouraging, we have to admit that we can't say with any certainty that this is predictive as opposed to prognostic. Everybody on the trial received enzalutamide. Um, and yet the literature is somewhat conflicted about outcomes of AR-positive TNBC. There are some series that have said survival is better with AR-positive TNBC, and others that have said it's no different than all-comer TNBC. So I think the jury is still out there, but there's lots of ongoing work that we're involved in in trying to understand the biology better and move this forward a bit. Um, you're all well aware of CDK4-6 inhibition in ER-positive breast cancer, Despite lots of exploration for a biomarker of benefit for CDK4-6 inhibitors, the main predictor is having a luminal biology. And we know that AR-positive TNBC has a luminal profile to it. Um, here, when palbocyclib was added to letrozole, there was a significant near doubling of medium progression-free survival. So we are hoping to exploit that benefit in a luminal biology by adding palbocyclib to bicalutamide. Um, this is an ongoing study with one of my former fellows who's now on faculty with us. And the phase one is complete. That will be presented at San Antonio. And the phase two is currently um, recruiting right now. Ruth O'Regan also has a phase two of, uh, phase one slash two of ribocyclib with bicalutamide. Um, and that is in its phase one period. So if you're in the middle of the country and you've got patients coming to you from the middle of the country, that's certainly something to think about also. Um, PI3 kinase pathway is known to be important in luminal breast cancers as well. And, and I would argue that we need to think about AR-positive TNBC more as a luminal cancer than as, say, a basal-like TNBC. It shares many pathway mutations and seems to share similar biology. So there's been success with the use of mTOR inhibition like Everlimus when added to endocrine therapy. And so the TBCRC um, is building on our first bicalutamide trial with moving into a randomized study of enzalutamide now as the backbone AR antagonist with or without an oral PI3 kinase inhibitor, tesalicib. 
Um, this phase one stalled a bit because of toxicity driven by the PI3 kinase inhibitor. So we hope this is going to reopen again shortly. Um, there is the option for crossover, and there's a lot of tissue acquisition along the way in the study. So we're hoping to learn a lot in terms of correlatives from this ongoing trial. So I mentioned steroid synthesis and abiraterone's mechanism. Seviterinol, or VT464, is a next-generation um, CYP17 inhibitor as well as AR antagonist all rolled into one drug. So this is an agent that is being studied in prostate cancer. And we are also leading uh, phase one and phase two study of this drug in breast cancer. Um, it has, again, compelling activity in prostate cancer that is resistant to both um, enzalutamide and abiraterone. And I'll just highlight, because of its CYP17 lyase specificity, you get away from the cortisol issues and the need for high-dose concurrent steroids. So the phase one of this trial is completed and manuscript is written and should be out shortly. Um, the phase two study is accruing now, and this is a trial that has four cohorts to it. Um, one that is for ER-positive breast cancer, because again, remember, this is going to lower downstream estrogens. And there are two cohorts for AR-positive triple-negative breast cancer, both of which are still open and accruing now one of which allows for prior exposure to AR antagonists, because we're still trying to learn and understand the mechanisms of resistance to AR inhibition and to resistance that develops in our patients who've come off study. Um, so because of the interesting preclinical work of VT464 in prostate showing activity in those previously exposed to abiraterone or enzalutamide, we have a whole dedicated cohort here to look at patients who've progressed on biclutamide or enzalutamide already. And there's also a section here in a cohort for patients with male breast cancer, a very rare subset admittedly, but um, there has been some signal of activity already in this group, and it has moved beyond its stage one of the phase two and is now accruing in the stage two. The primary endpoint is adjusted based on biology, so CBR16 for triple negative breast cancer and CBR24 for ER positive, and there is a robust amount of tissue collection, cell-free DNA collection, CTC collection, collecting everything you could imagine. <laughs> um, and then, as I said before, once we see something has a signal in metastatic disease, we try to move this up a bit earlier. We're leading uh, this adjuvant study, a feasibility trial of enzalutamide in AR-positive triple-negative breast cancer. As I mentioned, um, most recurrences are happening in these first two years after diagnosis. And so this is a feasibility study um, to see if patients can make it through one year of continuous therapy with the option to extend to two. And there is mandatory um, biopsies at the time of progression of disease, which would be standard of care anyway with the diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer. And so we're hoping that we can see, although it's not powered to show us efficacy, we're hoping that we can start to see some signal here of benefit in early stage disease. So there are lots of ongoing trials as well in other subtypes. AR is highly co-expressed with ER, and um, I will say that the exemestane and enzalutamide study was accepted for oral presentation at San Antonio, so that'll be coming soon in the public domain. And there is also co-expression of AR with HER2-positive breast cancer. About 50% of HER2-positive tumors are AR-positive as well. So there is a study of enzalutamide with concurrent trastuzumab that has completed accrual, and we're just waiting for those data to mature. 
So in the last 10 minutes, I'm going to touch on so three other buckets of interest in TNBC. Um, the first of which you can't you can't leave your house without hearing about immuno-oncology, whether you're in the oncology field or not. Uh, and there's been a, a lot of hand-waving and rationale thrown out there as to why um, the idea of checkpoint blockade and immuno-oncology might be useful in TNBC, as listed here. Some driven just by the presence of increased numbers of TILs in TNBC. Um, there is obvious pdl one expression in triple negative breast cancers. We know the Vanderbilt Group has described an immunomodulatory subset of TNBC. And so lots of reasons why this should work or, or potentially be worthy of, of study. Although the studies that are out there to date for multiple different uh, PD-1 and PDL one inhibitors is a bit underwhelming. The responses have been rather low. And again, the enthusiasm is around the long, durable, few responses that are out there. And I think that we're really compelled to try to figure out how we select for who is going to benefit from this approach. It is not the same blockbuster that we see in melanoma or some other solid tumors. The Keynote 86 trial of pembrolizumab just presented at ASCO. Sylvia Adams um, presented this. And cohort A, which was in oral presentation, is for women with triple negative breast cancer who had prior systemic therapy. So at least one prior line. And as you can see here, it's, it's again, a bit underwhelming. Overall response rates, 4%. And that was irrespective of pdl one expression. So we don't have a great biomarker to figure out who's going to benefit here. And a lot needs to be done, I think, to still figure out who, who this might be an approach for. And whether single agent or combination is, is the way to go. Um, also at ASCO was a poster session looking at the cohort in Keynote 86 that received therapy in the first line setting. And you start to see a bit more compelling activity here. So cohort B, previously untreated, PDL1 positive. Now we're seeing response rates more in the 23% range. So I think an interesting area to support in clinical trials, much is going on in concurrent um, administration with radiation therapy, as well as cytotoxic chemotherapy and figuring out how to sequence these. Antibody drug conjugates are a, another real interesting area in TNBC that are showing compelling data. Um, MU132 is an anti-trope 2 antibody conjugated to a metabolite of arenotecan, which is not a drug that we typically use systemically for metastatic breast cancer. Um, but SN38 is the active metabolite of CBT11. And MU132 was studied in a phase one with multiple solid tumor expansion cohorts. This particular cohort of triple negative breast cancer had almost 70 patients, heavily pretreated, a median of five prior lines of chemotherapy for advanced disease. And I already showed you really how abysmal our median PFS is, even in the first line setting. Here in a much later line, overall response rate was 30%, and CBR24 was almost 50%. Median progression-free survival is six months, and median OS was pushing out to 17 months. So this is quite encouraging, and there's a phase three randomized study against treatment of physician's choice, which is opening now across the country. And the toxicity was quite manageable. What we often expect with um, TCAN is significant diarrhea, and that was quite reduced with this um, antibody drug conjugate using its metabolite instead. 
There are lots of other ADCs in ongoing trials in TNBC. So live one is another potential target that appears to be highly expressed. So I mentioned trope two is in, I think, 88% of TNBCs. Live one is also highly expressed in TNBC, making it a, a potentially attractive target. Um, Pfizer has an ADC against EFNA4, and then the LY6E target as well has completed phase one and is hopefully moving into expansion. So another strategy and ongoing discovery to try to recognize what targets might be available in, in TNBC. And then lastly, uh, tumor genomic profiling is quite a hot topic, and I think as some of us have talked about already, maybe has greater yield in the ER-positive space. Um, we've done a lot of work with an in-house assay at MSK, but you can see really across the literature and multiple groups out there consistently find a lot of p53 mutations in TNBC, but not something that has been traditionally actionable for us in any way. And there are some other interesting areas that may lend themselves to treatment, but I think we have to start looking at breast cancer as really quite a heterogeneous pool, and TNBC in particular, as really a multitude of small subsets of cancer. And we'd like to see that we can really understand what the driver is, and that might change over time. So although we haven't had great yields from this approach yet, I think it is still worthy of um, following the trajectory of a tumor's evolution and what targets might get turned on that can open the door to interesting and hopefully effective targeted therapies. So there's a big laundry list here of some of the approaches ongoing that we try to respond to once we get one of these reports from a tumor genomic profile to see if we can have a rational strategy for at least a way of prioritizing one clinical trial over another. And so with that, I just would like to end in reminding everyone TNBC, poorly defined, a real basket term for a whole lot of cancers. But in clinical practice, when I meet a woman with triple negative breast cancer, the two things I, I really need to know up front are germline BRCA status and their AR status, even though it's unclear how to test for that universally. Um, and from there, recognizing chemotherapy remains the mainstay standard of care. Um, hopefully that's changing soon, and I think that for BRCA-associated TNBC, we will hopefully be seeing Olaparib. I think it's at the FDA for review now, and so we might actually have our first targeted therapy widely available for, for TNBC or at least a subset of TNBC. And then this idea of personalization is, is critical. Clinical trials remain an option from the very beginning, um, and I highlighted, as we've talked about, a few of our favorite approaches for now. So I'm going to stop. I rambled a lot in there. There are so many people to thank for their help over the years and collaborations, and I look forward to working with you guys over the years. Thank you. Any questions? Any yeah. Questions? How are you obtaining AR status? So we it's IHC, and we universally test every patient that comes to us with triple negative breast cancer mm -hmm. for AR. Um, and as you've seen from multiple trials, we've looked at both DACO and Vantana. We've traditionally used DACO and just recently switched to Vantana. And that's going to have to Yes. So they will, our pathologists report out 
what it is. And then from the clinical trials, the more recent clinical trials, the bar has been lowered to uh, over 0%, right? 1% and up counting as positive. No, they're reporting out a, an actual percent nuclear staining. And do you know of any work with the ASCO CAP guidelines for AR? Nothing out there yet. We've been talking about it, but I think that there's still such limited data out there. But I was just at a working group slash task force trying to figure out really what our next um, demands are as we move forward with looking at AR-positive biology and TNBC and, and what our biggest issues are that need to be answered and having a companion diagnostic to appropriately select patients before we move into a phase three is, is really critical. Yes. Are there many women who have somatic-only mutations in BRCA1 or 2, and do we know if sensitivity <laughs> to PARP inhibitors and Yeah. So we're finding, as you know, with impact testing at Memorial, we're looking at this population, and there's, um, there is a significant number that make it worthy of looking into this further with BRCA1 and 2. The TBCRC trial that I mentioned, Judy Garber is going to be leading, and it's looking at not just BRCA1, 2 somatic mutations, but others related to sort of homologous recombination in general and DNA damage pathways. Um, I, I, we don't know if PARC inhibitor is going to work there, but that's why we're doing that study. Your injury receptor work is really fascinating. I'm wondering, is it assumed that the weak energy is made by the adrenal that are driving the cells, or is <coughs> It may be that there's local production there because in the bicalutamide study, there was um, a correlative study of measuring serum levels of a panel of both estrogen-related and androgen-related um, hormones, and we really didn't see much fluctuation at the serum level. So it may really be tumor-related changes that are happening. That could be very important in terms of the responsiveness to the, the flutamide-like compound. Mm -hmm. Uh, it becomes a kinetic experiment uh, of uh, if the high levels, if, if testosterone and diapitestosterone are very high, then uh, it makes it all the more difficult with competition for that site. Right, right. That's a great, great point. Thank you. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thank much. you. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>